2: And they might not have joined what we know today as the resistance but they resisted in some way and I think that's what I've tried to make clear in my book that resistance with a small r takes many, many forms That was
4: Anne Seber talking about the experiences of women in occupied Paris during the Second World War
5: this Housewives League was set up at the time that the welfare state was being introduced in Britain and it was very opposed to the welfare state. And from a modern perspective, that really surprised me because you expect women to be uh, generally in favour of the welfare state because generally the welfare state benefits them.
4: And that was Joe Fidgen discussing post-war Housewives. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello, and welcome to our second podcast of July 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For most of the Second World War, Paris was under German occupation, with many men having left the city, it was often down to the Parisian women to cope with the effects of German rule. The story of these women has now been told in a new book by the writer and journalist Anne Seber, entitled Les Parisienne How the Women of Paris Lived, Loved and Died in the 1940s. We sent our Reviews editor, Matt Elton, to meet Anne in London and find out more.
6: This is a fascinating subject. Why do you think it's been perhaps underserved in kind of books previously?
2: I think that's a really interesting question. I think it's been underserved in life because women did not want to talk about their experiences after the war. Very few. um, uh, When women came back from the camps, they just wanted to get on with their lives to try and construct as normal a life as possible, maybe to marry or have children. There were a few women, and I talk about them in my book, a a woman like um, Denise Dufournier, who wrote about the camp straight away in 1945, while it was fresh in her mind and before this awful phrase, publisher fatigue, set in. And I think after that, after about 1946 and 1947, nobody was really interested. And you have to remember in France, the liberation of Paris came in 1944. The rest of France and the rest of the world had another eight months to go. So by the time the war was over, Paris had really got used to being free or free of its occupiers. Of course, life was still hard. So I think there was very much a feeling of, oh, we've been through the war, we've suffered, for goodness sake, let's get on with our lives. There was also this feeling that women hadn't really behaved in the resistance in the way that the men had. Now, I argue strongly that they had because they did all sorts of extraordinary things. I've met women who said to me, oh, I really did nothing. I just pushed a pram with a with a hand grenade in the pram, but that was nothing. Oh, I just um, delivered leaflets in the night. And if the Germans had found me, yes, I would have been taken for questioning and treated like a spy but that was really nothing because they were told that they hadn't carried weapons and indeed many of them had they weren't judged after the war as combatants so that's one of the really important words that the treatment of combatants or people who had really been part of an organized resistance group were were given much greater play more medals and all the rest of it now What I argue in the book is actually that women did carry weapons, and I've got several photographs and several documented stories of where women carried guns, women laid explosives, and the story I've just mentioned of of the woman who had a grenade in her pram, but many of them just had been led to believe that wasn't the really important thing. So it's taken a long time for the public to recognise that there were women in the resistance doing just as brave just as dangerous things as the men.
6: As war approached in its first days, how evident was it that women were going to play a central role in the war? Was it evident early on?
2: No, it wasn't at all. Um, Early on, France thought it would be victorious, that this would be a short war Germany would be defeated. They had their faith in the Maginot Line. I think one has to remember that um, the defeatist attitude, so-called, is a bit of a myth. They did not think that they would be defeated. They thought they would win and it would be over. But, of course, we all know with hindsight about the Blitzkrieg. And so women thought that for a short period um, their men would go off and fight and then they'd be back. So the magazines at the beginning of the war, and I think magazines are a really interesting source of how women were were thinking and behaving. The magazines told women, oh, you must dress wonderfully for your men at the front. They'll expect it of you. You'll cheer them on. Oh, you must wear lipstick. You must wear special underwear. I mean, extraordinary with hindsight to look at what seems like frivolous and superficial advice. But they really thought that the war would be short-lived. They thought also that they would need um, to carry... Uh, you know, these van these gas mask holders became very fashionable, but in fact, there was no gas attack, so they didn't need them. But they spent a fortune on terribly fashionable colour-coordinated gas mask containers um, and that was their view of, of the war. They didn't realize that they were going to be in for the long term. And once the Germans occupied, it changed again in 1940. And at first, they were terrified of the German occupiers, and there was the great Lexode, where a lot of women and children tried to get out of Paris. And then at the beginning, the Germans were so charming. They sent their most cultivated, cultured, handsome German soldiers who all behaved incredibly well to the women. So at first, they thought thought, this is going to be fine. And then a lot of the women returned to Paris. And it was really only gradually, in 1941, a little bit, when there were certain resistance movements in universities and among academic circles, but really in 1942. So after Operation Torch and the Allied landings. Then the Germans occupied the whole of France. And then really the um, the resistance began. And once the resistance began, isolated bursts, the reprisals began. And it was at that point, really, that the women recognised they had a role to play. They had to decide how they were going to confront the German occupiers. And it was at that point, I think, they decided, am I even going to stay in a camp If a German walks in, or is that too much? Should I leave? Or should I just carry on because I have to earn a living? If I'm a vegetable seller, if I'm an actress, whatever I do, I need to earn money. I need to feed the children because Paris became a significantly feminized city. And I think that's really what nobody has quite realized, that there were two million men who were prisoners of war. Other men had gone to join de Gaulle and the Free French in London, There were a few men, if they were Jews, they were in hiding or perhaps in the resistance, but they weren't out on the streets during the day. So what you saw in Paris was women, and it was women who had to interact with the Germans, women who had to decide, how am I going to feed my children? How am I going to look after my elderly parents? If perhaps my mother is half-Jewish, should she register? Of course, the Germans told her she should, but would it be safer not to register as Jewish and wear a yellow star? These decisions were constant and it was these decisions or choices, as I call it, that fell upon women almost exclusively. As
6: all these men disappeared from Paris, what was the atmosphere like in the city at that time?
2: Well, if you did what you were told and you didn't wear a star, a yellow star denoting that you were Jewish. You could perhaps pretend it was normal, but it was far from normal. There were no cars, so everyone went everywhere on bicycles. And slowly the shortages really started to um bite into how people lived. So on a Sunday, people might go out to the country and a cycle ride could take two hours to go to the country just to come back with some cabbages or some black market goods. So people were starting to get hungry and people were starting to wonder how they could survive. And children were often sent to the country just so that they could develop without rickets or other um, vitamin deficiency problems. And uh, there was daily queuing, and queuing could sometimes take four hours. The metro did run, but it didn't stop at every station. And one of my most extraordinary interviews, which really brought home the atmosphere to me, was with a woman now approaching 90, who was a young girl at the time, whose whole family was involved in the resistance and she lived in Versailles. But she would come into Paris to deliver what they called tract. I mean, they're really leaflets or political posters, which was terribly dangerous. So she said she would make herself look more childish than she was. She was about 17, but she'd wear cotton bobby socks and try and look like a schoolgirl. And in her rucksack, she would be carrying these leaflets. So if she were arrested, it would spell out trouble for her. Um, And she said that The problem with the metro was that you never knew where there would be a roundup at the top of the station. So coming out of a train was always terrifying. You never knew who you would, you know, if if there would be a a German patrol waiting for you at at the top of the station. And if there was, the worst thing to do would be to double back on yourself because that would immediately give the game away. So you had to develop very strong antennae and you'd probably move on to the next station by walking underground. And she said sometimes we would walk in the tunnels, two or three stations. Now, these were teenage kids. And, you know, when I think of myself at that age, perhaps I was braver than I am now as a mother. But the thought of my children having to do that sort of thing and just to walk underground, that sort of visceral fear in the gut of your stomach is something that our generation has grown up not knowing thankfully, but it's trying to recreate that atmosphere that wherever you go you could be arrested and picked up and suddenly you know vos papier vos papier where are your papers and there were a lot of false identity papers being made i've met several women who were involved in that that was one of the tasks that was given to women they had good handwriting perhaps artistic skills so they were good at creating false identity cards but you know, if you were picked up with a fake card or a fake Ausweis, the pass that allowed you to go from occupied Paris to the um, non-occupied zone, I can't call it the free zone. It certainly was not that, but but there was a demarcation line and you could be picked up there. So I think the atmosphere is one of constant fear. There were Allied airmen um, who needed hiding places. There were men on the run. And generally, women were increasingly used to to cart um, dangerous papers or as spies because it was thought that women with bicycles could hide things underneath the vegetables in their um, basket on their bicycle. So women increasingly became suspect because they were doing dangerous work.
6: Hmm. Do you think the Vichy government's attitude towards women... Uh, led some to become involved in the resistance. Do you think the fact they were viewed as lesser in some ways (laughs) led them to become
2: kind of... Well, of course, Vichy would argue with that description of them as lesser. Vichy um, maintained that women were more valuable as mothers of lots of children and staying at home. Yes, I think certainly the... um, exaggerated emphasis on glorifying a mother for staying at home and putting her trust in in Germans and going to schools to learn laundry making and cookery. Of, Of course, that antagonized a lot of women who had fought hard for their freedoms. But don't forget, Women in France did not have the vote. It's one of the most extraordinary things, these retrograde attitudes to women. They couldn't open a bank account if they were married in their own name without permission from husband or father. They couldn't have jobs without that permission. They couldn't vote. And also they weren't. According to the law, they weren't allowed to wear trousers because it was too masculine. So a lot of women just took to flouting the law. You know, if you knew your husband had been killed and all his suits were hanging up and you had no clothes, you'd take his suits and you'd cut them down. You needed the fabric. I've spoken to women who said it was really difficult to get access to funds because they didn't have their own checkbooks. So, of course, there were many women for whom those laws were just so ridiculous, they decided that they had to act. And they might not have joined what we know today as the resistance, but they resisted in some way. And I think that's what I've tried to make clear in my book, that resistance with a small r takes many, many forms and and it can be anything from walking out of a cafe, from just deciding that you're not going to toe the line, that you are going to help a Jewish friend in need. You will hide them for a bit. You will buy food, even though you haven't, strictly speaking, got the rations for it. There are many activities that didn't necessarily come into the category of the resistance, but they were very definitely resisting by my book. You know, this word choice keeps coming back. Women were faced with a choice at so many moments. And it was it was never a straightforward choice.
6: That idea of choice is also something that proved controversial when you spoke to some of these people for your research, didn't it?
2: Choice was really the word that I had in the foreground of my mind throughout the book. I also had it pinned up on my board as I was working. Before I started this book, um, there's a wonderful piece of writing by a man called Viktor Frankl and the search, man's search for meaning. If I can just read you this. What he wrote, and he was in the camps himself, he was a psychiatrist, and this is what he wrote The last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And there were always choices to make every day every hour offered the opportunity to make a decision, a decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to these powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom. Now, it's all very well to write that after the war, and it's all very well for me in the comfort of my study, writing the book, to think of this. But I think what he's saying is that the Germans or anybody an evil regime can take everything from you, your food, your clothes, your identity, everything, but they can't take your inner freedom, your decision, how you are going to behave, how you are going to respond. And I just tried to keep that in my mind as as I was writing it. And when I was interviewing a playwright called Jean-Claude Grombert, he's quite a well-known playwright in France, And um, he's written many plays about this. And I asked him about the choice that his mother had to give away to a passeur, a woman who you paid to take your children to a place of greater safety. Now, these passeurs were not always trustworthy. Sometimes they sold on the children to the Germans and made money out of it. Um, even if they were trustworthy and came from a Jewish organization, the parents were usually not told where the children were going to protect the children so that if the parents were picked up, they couldn't be tortured into giving away where all these orphanages of Jewish children were. So it struck me as a mother that this was really the most courageous choice a mother could make to hand over her children. And when I asked this man, if he ever talked with his mother after the war about the choice she had made. He looked at me as if I came from a different planet, that if I could use the word choice, I clearly had not understood what life was like. Well, he nearly walked out and I persuaded him to come back that I wasn't trying to be offensive, that I was trying to put myself into the mindset of his mother and thousands of mothers like him. And obviously he survived and, in fact, his mother survived. But he tried to explain to me that, in his view, his mother had no choice because, you know, Jews by this time were not allowed into certain shops except until four o'clock in the afternoon, by which time all the food had gone. There was nothing left. They weren't allowed to take their children into certain parks. It was so impossible to be a Jew in Paris and the husband had already been arrested. So the mother was surviving in her little atelier as a seamstress. That was true of a lot of Jewish women. You know, they barely made ends meet, but they just stayed in their attic trying to sew Uh, if their specialty was zips or if their specialty was sequins or beading or whatever it was, you know, they would just earn a pittance enough to survive. But if there was a raid and if the concierge gave them away, then the children would be taken and, and nobody quite knew where, but by the middle of the war, everybody had a pretty shrewd idea that it was a place you didn't come back from. So. I really, the more people I spoke to, I began to understand how impossible this word choice was, but I still have clung on to it that ultimately, even in a camp, one has a choice of whether you're going to submit or do good deeds. And impossible though it is for me to imagine, I've tried really, really hard.
6: Mm. In that light, how should we now view people who collaborated with the Germans?
2: Well, that is the the question, isn't it? And, of course, nobody who writes about this period in history is ever going to find people who collaborated to interview. Nobody's going to say, oh, yes, I thought the Germans were wonderful, so I thought the Germans were going to win the war, so I just decided that I would um, throw my lot in with them. So I've obviously had to rely on diaries and letters because a lot of people did collaborate I think you have to break down the word collaborate. Now, Pétain was the first to use, Marshal Pétain, um, who ran the Vichy regime, was the first to use the word collaborate, but collaborate means several different things. And I've tried at every stage to show the light and the dark, where I look, for example, at the Comédie Française, the French National Theatre. I show a woman who resigned on the first day because she couldn't bear to work in a theatre where... Um, Jews were not allowed to perform and Jewish plays were, were not acted. And Béatrice Bretty, who threw in her lot with Georges Mandel, and that's an amazing story. Um, she very definitely is one of my heroines, she decided, collaboration. And she was not Jewish, but she just decided this is the correct way to behave. At the same time, there were actors at the Comédie Française who continued And I don't think it's for me to judge them as collaborating. They did what they needed to do because that was their job. And if you take somebody like, for example, Marie Marquet, who after the war had to face um, uh, uh, charges of collaborating, Her son was in the resistance, and she used the German contact she had to try and persuade him not to commit a particularly dangerous action. She wanted to get him out of the resistance because she wanted him to have a safe life. Um, I don't think it's for me to judge her as a collaborator merely because she tried to rescue her son, and he was. Ultimately killed. I think at every stage you can find some sort of justification, but there are more extreme cases. At the opera, for example, there's Germaine Luba. She also she was a Wagnerian soloist. You could say she collaborated because she performed with to a specifically German audience. So that was a more extreme case. What else could she have done? Her voice was coming to its peak. The Germans adored Wagner. The Germans believed that opera was their their sphere anyway. It's very difficult to imagine how she would have earned a living if she had not performed on stage. Perhaps she might not have frequented German salons, but you know, if, if you understand that singing Wagner was what she knew how to do, it's very hard to imagine her just deciding, I'm not going to sing. Where after the war, people tried to judge women who'd collaborated. This was a very gendered response. And I think um, that's really where I I take issue with those who were um, judged as collaborators, young girls who may have had a romantic attachment with a German soldier, were immediately hauled in front of um, village squares and had their heads shaved, or worse, they were made to parade naked around town. Maybe they even had a swastika painted on their forehead. Now, there were a lot of romantic entanglements because by some accounts there were between 70 and 100,000 Franco-German babies born. That's a lot of collaboration or collaboration horizontale, as it was called. But it's very different for the men. Um, The men were often um, committing industrial collaboration. You know, there could be men who ran building companies. I know of a family, a a Jewish family, where they made barbed wire. And the granddaughter of that family says, I'm convinced my grandparents survived because in some way they collaborated. But if you make barbed wire and the Germans want barbed wire, um, and that's your safety and you survive, it's hard to imagine What else you might do. Of course, there are choices, and some people made them. But it's just not such a clear cut area. And particularly for women, women who were exposed to the Germans, and women who felt if I sleep with a German, because sexual collaboration was rife at many levels and sometimes resistors would sleep with the enemy in order to get a false document to be released. And I've got one story of an English nanny who slept with a policeman in order to have a letter posted to her parents to tell them that she was alive and she recognised that this was a necessary trade-off. So certainly sexual collaboration comes into it, but there's no question that the women paid um, an unequal price at the end of the war for collaboration horizontale when men who were involved in the black market men who were art dealers men who were trading whatever commodity they could did not always face the same the same punishments they certainly had a trial whereas many of the women were judged guilty without even a trial
6: how would you like this book to change people's perceptions of this period and of women's role within it i suppose
2: i think i hope people finally recognise that women played an extraordinary role in resisting of course there were collaborators i'm not trying to whitewash the collaborators but I think when I started this book and I told people I was writing about women in Paris, they would say to me, oh, yes, I know those women. They all slept with the Germans. Well, they had their heads shaved. That's their comeuppance. And it's so far from what really is the very complex picture of how women behaved, women who gave up marriage to their loved ones because they had to stay and look after elderly parents. I found those stories very moving. Women who really risked everything in order to resist and women who had no chance to resist because they were rounded up and taken to the camps, but women who really played a deeply significant role.
4: That was Anne Sabah,
2: Les Parisiennes, how
4: the Women of Paris Lived, Loved and Died in the 1940s is out now in the UK, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. In the US, it's due to be published in October by St Martin's Press. And you can read more from Mattanan in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. Also in this month's edition, there are articles on Eleanor of Aquitaine, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, the Ancient World, and the historical context of Britain's vote to leave the EU. You can get hold of our August issue in all good news agencies in the UK, and internationally in our many digital formats. And outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash US. That's buysubscriptions.com forward slash
1: US. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
3: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturisers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturiser brand.
4: And now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorne.
0: The troubled artist Vincent van Gogh cut off not just a portion of his earlobe, but the entire left ear, a newly discovered letter has revealed. A letter from van Gogh's doctor, Dr Felix Ray, showed a sketch of the mutilated ear and detailed what happened to it. With the help of the letter, researcher Bernadette Murphy has also been able to show that the ear was given not to a prostitute, as we previously thought, but to a girl named Gabrielle, who was working as a cleaner in a brothel. The maid had been injured by a dog bite and was working to pay off her medical bills, the Telegraph reports. Murphy has speculated that Van Gogh could have been offering his own flesh in a noble but deluded attempt to help heal her. Murphy traced the doctor's letter to an American archive after finding a reference to it in a letter in a Dutch archive. Ray's letter will go on display in an exhibition entitled On the Verge of Insanity, along with a pistol Van Gogh used to shoot himself in 1890 and 25 of his paintings and drawings. In other news... A building that was once the home of Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, has gone on sale for an undisclosed sum. The 13th-century Castle Lodge in Ludlow boasts 12 bedrooms and is now Grade II listed. Catherine of Aragon lived at the property while she was married to Henry VIII's brother, Arthur, Prince of Wales. Thomas Seckford, an official at the court of Elizabeth I, also lived at the property during the 16th century. Balfour's, the estate agent that will oversee the sale, said that the price of the building five years ago stood at almost £1 million. Castle Lodge is currently open to visitors, who can view the property for just £3. Meanwhile, a series of drawings discovered in the margins of a medieval manuscript were probably made by children, a historian has revealed. Doodles depicting a horse or cow, a human figure and possibly images of the devil were found in the pages of a 14th-century book from a Franciscan convent in Naples, ITV News reports. Dr Deborah Thorpe from the University of York enlisted the help of child psychologists to identify the drawings, who confirmed they were probably drawn a couple of centuries later by children who may have been bored by the dense Latin text. The doodles are thought to have been the work of at least two children aged four to six. Thorpe found the drawings by chance, while working through an online database of medieval manuscripts for an unrelated project. I thought, this is really interesting, has anyone written about this? she told ITV News. If you compare them with the doodles that children make today, they are really similar, she added.
4: Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets for this year's History Weekend Festivals are currently on sale. The events are taking place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October, and then York from the 18th to 20th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, such as Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Anthony Beaver, Simon Sabag Montefiore, and Yanina Ramirez. You can find out more details and purchase tickets now at historyweekend.com. Just after the Second World War ended, a group of housewives in Britain got together to tackle austerity and the new welfare state. The story of this British Housewives League is told in a new BBC Radio 4 documentary, which is due to air this Saturday, the 16th of July. Our Acting Deputy Editor, Sue Wingrove, spoke to the show's presenter, Jo Fidgen, to get the lowdown on this fascinating slice of British social history.
7: I'm talking to Joe Fidgen, who has presented a number of BBC Radio 4 programmes. Her latest one looks at the relationship between housewives and the state over the last 75 years. Now, Jo, what inspired you to look at the relationship between British housewives and the state in the first place?
5: Well, I was actually researching another program and came across a reference to the British Housewives League, which I hadn't heard of before. And there's there's one woman in particular um, called Dorothy Crisp who was involved in the league and, and led it for a while. Who is such a, an extraordinary person? She just kind of takes your breath away as you read about her. So she got me intrigued, and I started looking into it and. What took me by surprise, really, is that um, this Housewives League was set up at the time that the welfare state was being introduced in Britain, and it was very opposed to the welfare state. And from a modern perspective, that really surprised me, because you expect women to be uh, generally in favour of the welfare state, because generally the welfare state benefits them. And um, so this, this was intriguing to me. And then the other sort of side of this is that I, on a very personal level, never considered being a housewife, I think um, I grew up in the 70s and thoroughly imbued in the type of feminism that says that women you know will find equality through equal participation in the workforce and that this is this is where we need to go and fight for our rights and so on so on a personal level, I was very intrigued by this group of women who said there is another way of living and I wanted and I think feminism is going through You know, some difficult questions, but it's clear that a lot of women who work are also housewives and struggling with the double burden of working outside and inside the home and that that they are simply tired and on the wrong side of the gender pay gap uh, and, you know, asking themselves, is it really possible that this feminist promise that we could have it all is actually deliverable? And so on a personal level, I wanted to look at the perspective I had never really considered through the lens of this extraordinary group of women in the 1940s
7: so they were obviously quite proud of being housewives and uh, happy happy with their lot um why did they set up this organisation then
5: well um after the war just as the war was ending um i think there was a general feeling in the country that rationing would also come to an end um and when it became clear that it wasn't going to and in fact when it was clear that this was going to bite even harder then a group of women who were fed up with queuing actually initially that was their main objection they were just tired of queuing all the time um said okay we've had enough and there's a a particular woman called irene lovelock who was a vicar's wife and a very respectable very well-to-do very docile woman actually walked past a long queue of women one very wet June morning in 1945 and and, um, was so outraged that the women in the queue were um, standing there getting wet. Some were pregnant, some were elderly, some had their children with them. And she called a meeting um, and tapped into this seam of anger that existed and and pretty much immediately set up the British Housewives League, which, as I say, started as an anti-queuing organisation, but very quickly expanded into something uh, much more Uh, Well, I mean, a much bigger picture, but also quite aggressive over time. You
7: can... Imagine, I suppose, or believe that after the war finished, they would suddenly feel that they'd all pulled together and now they could perhaps raise these concerns. I mean, perhaps in wartime, it wasn't thought to be patriotic to, to moan about this sort of thing.
5: Indeed, all pulled together. But I think women also thought that, that they had had a particularly tough time, which uh, it, as that they were the ones who were really dealing with rationing. They were the ones who were most affected by austerity. They were the ones who were queuing. Those are the ones who were you know, making do and mending. They were they were the ones who had to provide for a family on not very much. And I think you're right, during the war, everyone was pulling together. After the war, they were thinking, wait a minute, we've had enough of this. And one of the things that Irene Lovelock said was women are not prepared to be beasts of burden anymore. And I think there was a feeling that women and housewives in particular at the time were a very, very important group of people. Not only were they the the big consumers in society and therefore of interest to, to politicians. But they were also seen as the homemakers at a time when the home had never been more important. I mean, there was a feeling that this was what the war had been fought for, was for the, for the home and the family, and that the country would be reborn in the family. And there was a, a sense of pronatalism and uh, you know, housewives took on an importance and a status that perhaps they had never had.
7: Okay, so they, they've got these grievances. How did they make their, make their feelings felt? What did they actually do? Well, initially,
5: um, when Irene Lovelock set it up, she was, as I say, she was a very kind of docile, polite woman, so it was petitions, big petitions against different types of rationing that were coming in. Then um, she was replaced very suddenly by um, this woman I mentioned before called Dorothy Crisp, uh, who is a little bit reminiscent of Margaret Thatcher, although actually much more strident. And she radicalized the League. She was, um, I think you could probably describe her as an extreme right-wing feminist. And she brought in uh, suffragette-style tactics. So we'd we'd gone from a situation where people would simply sign a form and then send it off to the the food ministry or the fuel ministry complaining about the quality of coal or whatever the suddenly, here is a woman who is threatening to throw an iron bevan off Westminster Bridge if he brings in the National Health Service Act. She's organising telephone blockades of of various ministries. She's literally, the phone is ringing off the hook. Um, She is sending relays of deputations to the food and fuel ministries. um, So the civil servants are having to be constantly distracted from their jobs by having to deal with these deputations. She held hunger marches and huge rallies and all sorts of stunts that they pulled off. They sent brisket to the food minister and poor quality coal to the fuel minister. And what they were really, because they weren't, they weren't an enormous group. I mean, the Women's Institute was, was much bigger and much milder. There are claims of up to 100,000 members at one time that, that may be exaggerated. But what they were really, really good at was getting press attention. And Dorothy Crisp, in particular, was superb at this. And the press loved her. They couldn't get enough of her. So she just pulled off publicity stunt after publicity stunt, getting them a huge amount of attention and actually quite a lot of power. Politicians on the left were very scared of them but also politicians on the right. She decided she didn't like the Conservatives either because the Conservatives she felt were consenting to the welfare state. And she was very libertarian um, and sort of anti-politics and anti-expert and a a group of very angry women. And she personally had political ambitions. She was determined she was going to be the first female prime minister. And to a certain extent, she saw this organisation as a way of launching herself politically, which never happened.
7: And did they actually get any results? They claimed to get results. Um,
5: they claimed to get ministerial scalps, although I think probably those scalps came um, because of other circumstances too. Um to be honest, it is hard to see what they delivered in the sense that the welfare state was obviously created, the NHS was created, various things they campaigned against, um, fluoridation of the water supply, um, they didn't want milk distributed in schools, these these things they, they didn't really achieve. And in fact, I mean they did keep going, they were very noisy until um until really Dorothy Crisp left in the in the, the late 40s in disgrace. Um, But they kept going until the 70s, when really I think they were overtaken by the more dominant feminist voice that came through at that time. Having said that, the group kept going until only a couple of years ago. And um, uh, their campaign over their main campaign over the last several decades has been for Brexit. Um, So they may well claim that they have achieved one of the things that they were setting out for.
7: So... I'd like to talk about the 70s, but before we do that, can we just go back and think about why they were against the welfare state? I mean, and why they were against things like school milk. I mean, these days we would think these were fabulous things.
5: Mm. Well, um, they were against the state because they saw the state, um, through the welfare state, trying to replace the role of the wife and mother. It was her job to look after the husband and the children. And here was the state saying, we can do this. And there was a huge resistance to the idea that anybody could perform that function better than the mother. And that partly explains, or completely explains, why they were opposed to the distribution of, of milk in schools. Because it was parents' duty, particularly the mother's duty, to provide milk for the children. And this was the state saying, no, we're taking over one of your roles. And I think they saw... Um, as I say, it was an immensely powerful time to be a housewife and they saw that power being chipped away. Um, And I I think it was largely a power struggle with with this idea that anybody could replace the mother.
7: Okay. So then we move along and the 60s came along and um, along with all the other changes at that time, the role of women began to change as well. Um, Feminism arrived. Uh, What happened to the housewife at this point?
5: Well, I mean, I think what we often hear is is the sort of the feminist side of things which is you know the housewife simply got absorbed in, into the labor market certainly it- The the number of women participating in the workforce rose very dramatically from the 70s onwards. Uh, But what interested me for the programme in a way was to look at that period from the other perspective, from the perspective of the women who did lose out, the women who did want to be housewives and wanted to stay that way. Um, And, well, they fared very badly and were were deeply resentful of what was going on. And I think the women who got the worst of it were the women who found themselves um, through the you know the mood of the time, but also um, the economic situation of the time, with government trying to force more and pe- more and more people into, or encourage more and more people into the workforce to get to get at taxes and productivity. They found that they were working outside the home um, for often not very much money and doing um, jobs that didn't carry much weight or status, and then they were also working um, at home all the time as well. So I think actually that group of women who were were sort of between the two. They weren't wealthy enough to stay home um, and and just be provided for on one income anymore. Uh, but there was no one else who was going to help Matt at home either. Um, and they are the women, I think, who most lost out in that situation. And in a way, that situation hasn't been resolved um, in the sense that all the evidence suggests that women still do uh, more work around the home than men do, even when both partners um, work full time. And I think this is where as I said, the starting point of the program came from, which is nothing Nothing very substantial has changed in most women's lives in that period. You know, there, there is a possibility for some women to go out into the workforce and to do extremely well um, and to pay other people, usually women, to come and do their chores for them around the house. Um, but uh, but a, a very large number of women are just feeling squeezed by the current situation.
7: I mean, it was in the 1960s, it was suggested actually on a BBC programme that men should take equal responsibility for childcare. So um, looking back over the last half century, why do you think the concept of house husbands never really got off the ground?
5: I think it's a status thing. Um, I think women's work, whether it's in the home, looking after children, doing the cooking and the cleaning, all of those things, or in the workplace, doing the cooking and the cleaning and all of and the childcare and all those sorts of things, isn't valued. And I think it is still very much associated with women. Um, Certainly, you know, the the statistics suggest that women do most of that type of stuff in the home and indeed in in the workforce. And I think the the, the big question that we're all going to have to face is how you raise the status of that work so that it becomes more attractive to men. Um, And I suspect that's the reason uh, why we're seeing a very slow take up of shared paternity leave and so on, um, parental leave. Because of the status issue, there is still a feeling, dis- despite whatever we say in, in surveys about attitudes to women in the home, which have shifted a lot in 30 years, uh, how we behave hasn't shifted very much at all.
7: There was an attempt, I think was it was in the 60s or 70s, to, well, the concept of unwaged work was sort of created and there was a campaign for women to be paid wages for housework. How How far did that get In this country, not very far. Um,
5: The woman who led that campaign, Selma James, an American feminist who who came over um, and I think took issue with the very middle class flavor of a lot of feminism at that time and said, you know what, pushing women into the workforce to do miserable jobs is not really a gain at all. Um, so said let's recognize them at home um, and pay a wage and recognize the huge amount of work they do um, and therefore by paying them improve the status of that work it didn't really catch on here i think possibly because um resistance uh, from the right saying absolutely you shouldn't pay for this kind of work because this is work done for love and it's work done because it's you know it's a it's a fulfillment of a of a, of a woman's nature and these kinds of arguments were on on the one side and I think on the left the argument were, this risks institutionalizing women in the home and must be resisted. So her voice was was one in the wilderness, really.
7: Okay. Now, um, one other interesting factor that uh, has, has come up during your program is the correlation between housewives and elections. So I think you sort of started off looking at the 1940s butcher's queues where the, um, the British Housewives League would would get together and then you, you go on to Mum'snet so what's the relationship between housewives and elections well I
5: think in in the early 50s um, certainly I mean housewives were credited with um, shifting the vote to the right um, people were moving away from uh, Labour mainly because I mean one of the reasons would be austerity measures, but housewives were very powerful in that. And there was a, a, a quote that the, the 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 election was was lost in the in the queue at the butchers and the grocers. Um you go forward to the 1970s and and housewives by this point are firmly voting conservative um and the conservatives are absolutely banking on the housewives vote. Very, very powerful voice again. I think what happens after that is um is a more confused picture because once women start going out into the workforce um, and reaching higher positions and once they're getting further in education, the vote splits quite a lot uh, and women uh, quite recently have have shifted left in a way that that wasn't there before. I think the difficulty now is identifying what the housewives vote would be. I mean, certainly politicians um, target Women in their 30s, 40s, who might have young children, who might be interested in what policies they've got on childcare. But that is where the debate is being had. And that group of women are immensely important in elections um, and will will basically vote for the best childcare policies. But um, in terms of the housewives vote, women rarely call themselves housewives anymore. And the the shift in the workforce has been, it used to be the determining factor. Uh, about whether women were likely to work or not was whether they were married. And that doesn't really count for much anymore in terms of whether you work or not. The big factor now is whether you are a mother. Um, and that's where I think Mumsnet comes in. Um, Mumsnet is much more about, well, um, you know, how are mothers' lives going to be made better where there is no assumption that those women are going to be at home. And how many of those women would call themselves housewives, I'm not sure. Most of the women I was speaking to for the programme resist the label um, and prefer to be called either a full-time mum or a stay-at-home mum. That's been the big shift in focus, I think.
7: Okay, because, you know, when women do talk about what they do um, during the day, um, some women will say, oh, I'm, I'm just a housewife. Yeah. Um, so it's become quite a demeaning label. Um, do you think the term housewife is dead and gone forever or do you see a, a time when women if they can afford it, will turn their back on the world of work and embrace the role once again. I can't see the
5: term going through a revival. I mean, the, the British Housewives League didn't fizzle out until a couple of years ago. And when I asked the the, the last honorary secretary of the league um, why she thought that was, she said, well, women don't want to be associated with a group that labels them as housewives anymore. The, the, world, the word has been completely demeaned and nobody wants to be associated with that. I don't see the term coming back. Could the housewife be coming back, or you know, the stay-at-home mom, or whatever it might be? Might she be coming back? There is talk of a shift in that direction. Um, I'm I'm not sure it's yet backed up by too many figures, but there is there is certainly a rise that people are recording in um, in sort of glamorizing domesticity again, and point out that a lot of peak-time TV programs these days are about domestic pursuits, whereas they would have been daytime TV before. My feeling is that that is simply the glamorous side of of um, of cookery or whatever it might be, or running the house, um, and actually the drudgery of it is still um, is still not really being addressed. As I said, what I suspect um, the the direction of travel will be will be maybe a parent will choose to stay home more. Um, but maybe policy direction at the moment is towards making that gender neutral. Um, I'm not sure the housewife is coming back. I'm not sure what the new term would be. I mean, people are suggesting chief household officer and domestic manager and things like that. Something gender neutral, maybe.
7: Yes, <laughs> but not house husband. <laughs> I can't see it taking off. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Now, um, finally, could you just tell me about some of the people you came across during the making of this programme?
5: Yeah, some extraordinary people. Um the, the the woman who was the last uh, Honorary Secretary of the Housewives League, uh, a woman called Lynn Atkinson, um, is um, is a, a force of nature, really. Um, she's been campaigning extremely hard for the UK to leave the um, European Union. Um, her personal story is very telling. She grew up. Um, in South Africa to to British father. Her mother died when she was very young and she effectively became a housewife at the age of 12 and would go to school and look after the home and her father um, the rest of the time. um, Came to Britain in the 1980s because uh, Mrs Thatcher had um, uh, improved trade rules from her point of view. So um, she became the person who was trying to hold this league together she introduced us to a woman who'd been in the British Housewives League since the 1950s called Stella Masters um, and who edited the newsletter for many, many years until it, until it, as I say, fizzled out a couple of years ago. And it was fascinating talking to her because here's a woman in her 80s who um, grew up with an ideal of the housewife, which you know someone in her 70s wouldn't really have grown up with, and who was making a passionate case for how fulfilled a woman can be in the home how intellectually stimulating it can be Um, and how she would fill her time with intellectual pursuits and with weaving and spinning and she showed me some of the cushions and rugs that she'd woven and extraordinary craft and that talking to her and being in her environment made me think yes I can see I can see that there would be many attractions to this except that she was really operating in a time before women had a choice about this. And I think they, the issue of choice that came up in the 1970s for, for a lot of women, um, both complicated things, but also made it possible for women these days to choose to stay home. And I think one of the the big things we're going to have to look at and deal with as, as feminists and non-feminists in, in, in coming coming period will be respecting those choices, whatever choices they are.
7: Yeah, and indeed... The same, I guess, would go for men. Uh, you know, at the moment, it's it's quite unusual for the man to stay at home, to choose to stay at home. Um, and maybe they feel that they, they are not allowed to make that choice. And until they feel that they can make that choice, then it's always going to fall to the woman, isn't it?
5: <laughs> Indeed, and I suppose it's going to be up to policymakers to a degree to make that choice feasible, but it's also going to be up to society to to remove the stigma, I think, of, of somebody who, who stays home. A young woman I was speaking to who's got a couple of um, children who've just gone to school and who stayed home talked about how... Um, She'd had a job as cabin crew and she used to go to parties and people would be so interested in her and her job. And then as soon as she said, oh, actually, I I don't work and your words, I'm just a housewife. Uh, You know, people just cut her down, don't want to talk to her or make jokes at her expense. Oh, so you sit around drinking coffee all day and going to Pilates. And I think that those kinds of attitudes possibly mean that um, that that's where the work needs to be done um, and what will be the critical factor possibly in deciding um, whether men stay home. I did speak to a a Swedish woman for the programme who's an expert on on British post-war radio. And um, she says in Sweden, they have a thing called Latte Papa. And because they have different rules about, uh, about parental leave, lots more men stay home in Sweden to look after their children when they're young. And they've got the nickname you know, Latte Fathers because now everyone says, oh, so you're sitting around drinking coffee for the next few months. So that, that stays the attitude. But maybe the policy has shifted in a way that has made it more possible for men to decide to stay home.
4: That was Joe Fidgen. Archive on 4, The League of Extraordinary Housewives, is due to air this Saturday, the 16th of July, on BBC Radio 4, and will be available on BBC iPlayer after that. Well, that's pretty much it for this episode, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking about Britain's two 20th century King Edwards, with Richard Davenport Hines and Piers Brendan. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.
1: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.